Amen. It's good to be with you again today. It's a great joy and privilege to open the Lord's Word together. I read this morning online a quote from a man named James Stewart. I, I don't know the man, but I saw the quote and I thought it was really good to begin our time together today. It said, in essence, that the purpose of preaching, our purpose as we're gathered together sitting under the authority of the Lord's Word is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. That, that is the purpose of preaching, summed up really, um, really in a short manner, that, that we want to see the beauty of God. We want to feed our minds upon the truth of the Lord. We want our consciences to be quickened to His truth and our wills to be devoted to do as He would command. And so that's our goal today. And in seeking out that goal, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll focus in on verses 8 through 11 this morning as we kind of finish up this opening section of Peter's second epistle. Through the first seven verses, we have seen Peter write of the divine power of the Word of God, and we have seen Peter write of the invitation to be partakers and sharers in the divine nature of God, not that we become like God's, but that we share in His glory, that we have this joyful participation with the Lord. And Peter wraps up his opening discussion today by writing of how we should strive after and how we will attain, how we will be given entrance into the kingdom of God, entrance into the kingdom of God. This opening section of Second Peter, I believe, is one of the most pointed passages of Scripture as it pertains to the call and the importance of personal holiness, holiness being the outworking of salvation. In our text today, Peter mentions this idea of being useless, and being unfruitful. He says that those who lack maturity and lack the drive to grow in godliness are like blind people who are short-sighted, who forget the purification, the purifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us that it is in this way, in this striving after Christ, that we have assurance, that we have understanding and, and the knowledge that the Lord has supplied eternal life to us. So with that, let's look at our text. I want to back up to verse 5 to kind of set some context. And so we will read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. I'll ask that you stand with me as we read the Lord's Word together. This is God's Word. It is holy, inspired, and inerrant. It's given to teach, to instruct, and to train us in godliness. And reads as follows, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind, 
or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. This is God's word. May he write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now join me, if you will, and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our God, we come before you now, and first we just stop to praise your great and mighty name, for you are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. All of your creation points to your magnificent power and your great glory in all things. Lord, when we consider your works, In the work of your hands, who are we, Lord, that you would be mindful of us? Who are we that you would care for us? Who are we that while we were your enemies, you would choose to send your son to die for us, to reconcile us to you through the blood of his cross? Lord, as we consider those great truths, I pray that that we will be humbled Lord, I pray that we would understand just a a, a small hint of your greatness, that we would understand our lowliness, that, that we are nothing but for your great grace. Lord, as we seek to study your word and have your word written upon our hearts, we understand that this work is but a miracle that only you can complete. Lord, for our minds, if not helped by your Holy Spirit, will be too dull to grasp the truths before us. Our hearts will be too cold to hear and receive and apply the truth and to repent of our sins. But Lord, your Holy Spirit has quickened us unto salvation. Your Holy Spirit is a revealer of all truth and all righteousness. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would now open our minds to this glorious truth that you have for us today. Lord God, as our Savior prayed, would you sanctify us by the truth, for your word is truth. Would you give us eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that eagerly and earnestly long to know and understand and apply the truth. Lord, help us not to rely on our feeble and weak and worthless efforts. Lord, we know that you call us as your people to strive earnestly, but we know that we strive only in the strength that you supply. So help us not to rely on our own doing, our own strength, our own merit. Help us to look to Christ. Help us to walk in the Spirit. Help us to put off and put away the flesh. Live in such a way that brings you honor and glory. Lord, I ask that you would be pleased and glorified to write your word upon our hearts, to conform us to the image of your Son. 
and to give yourself all the praise and honor and glory that you are due. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at these verses today, they are so very clear for us. They instruct us in the importance of walking in godliness as those who are partakers, those who are sharers in the divine nature of God. For it is fitting for the partakers of divine nature, those who long and yearn for divine glory, it is fitting for us to walk in the truth. For the kingdom of heaven is not given to those who live and walk in unrighteousness. Paul was very clear in writing that in 1 Corinthians. He said that, Do you not know that the kingdom of heaven is not given to those who walk in unrighteousness? Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were justified, and you were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the driving emphasis of the text before us today, this transformation that comes to those who are in Christ, that we are washed, that we are cleansed, that we are justified, and that we are being sanctified because of the work of God through the Spirit in conforming us to the Savior. So as we look at this text, we see that entrance into the kingdom of Christ comes to those who diligently seek to increase in godliness. We must seek to increase in godliness, to know our Savior, and we must remember His saving work, and we must rest in His saving power. It's one of the the great things about this text is we have these two paths where we are called to strive and labor and diligently seek to apply and walk in the truth, but then we're told that the kingdom of Christ is abundantly supplied. It's abundantly freely given. It's abundantly and freely given because of the finished work of Christ at the cross. We cannot earn that. We cannot merit any more of God's grace or His favor on this journey toward eternal life. We strive and labor, but we do it in the strength that God supplies for His glory, not to earn righteousness, but to please the God that we love and serve. Continually in this text, we are drawn back to the work of Christ. Really, in every verse, you see a drawing back to Christ. Verse 8, we we see Peter write of the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he talks about the purifying work, how we are purified from our former sins. In verse 10, he says that we must be diligent to make certain of the Lord's calling And choosing of us. And verse 11 tells us of our entrance into the very kingdom of Christ that is given to us. So so you have these paths where we, we must supply this effort. We must supply all diligence. But we know the kingdom is supplied. The the grace is given. The work is finished. And so while we strive and labor, we always lift our eyes. We always lift our heads. We always want to seek after and run our race toward Christ. So let's begin and look at how entrance into the kingdom of God is supplied. There are some ways that the Lord tells us we must live, some things that we must avoid, some things that we must pursue, and then as those things all come together, there's this glorious security that we have in Christ. So beginning at verse 8, we see that there's this idea of effective knowledge of Christ effective, powerful, working knowledge. For if these qualities are yours 
and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of Christ. If these things are yours, you are not useless. You are not unfruitful. You are effective. You are making progress in godliness. You say, what are these qualities? Well, think back to verses 5 through 7 that we looked at last week. For this reason also apply all diligence. In your faith supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. We, we have these two great ends of the Christian life, godliness and love. They, they are fruits that work together, but they are also individual in that godliness produces love. Love for God then produces godliness. Really, you could take verses 5 through 7 and, and look at them forwards and backwards because love drives this integrity, this character, this faith that we have in Christ, but genuine faith in Christ works through the Spirit to the end of love. I think you could see here, kind of as Paul alludes to in Galatians chapter 5, writing of the fruit of the Spirit, there Paul shows the fruit of the Spirit as being a single gift, a single fruit. It's not the fruits with an S of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit works all of those things in us. And these items, these qualities are the same way. You can't have one and not be on the path to get to the rest of these. So they all work together. Why are these important? That's the question that we can kind of answer in verse 8. Why is it important that these qualities be in us? Peter says that if they're yours and if they're increasing, you're neither fruitless nor unuseful in the knowledge of Christ. So let's think about that. Peter says that these qualities must be yours. And I want to be careful in thinking about this, but I want to look at what the text says. These qualities are to be yours. You have an ownership of, of this godly quality that is supposed to be working up in you. It's not that you've earned it. It's not that you set yourself out and say, I'm now going to be godly. It's that the Lord entrusts these qualities, just like he entrusts spiritual giftings to you, he entrusts them to you so that you then walk in them, so that you nourish them, so that you build them up and, and exercise them so that they may bear more fruit. You are, as the Apostle Paul would describe in 1 Corinthians 4, you are a steward. Paul said that he was a steward of the mysteries of godliness. Mysteries of godliness, of course, referring to the gospel. He was a steward, and Paul said that the steward must be found trustworthy. A steward must be found faithful in what is entrusted to him by his master. And so the Lord entrusts these qualities to us, and we must receive them as a stewardship. We must strive to be good stewards and allow these qualities to grow and to increase. How do we do that? By walking in the ordinary means of grace. By walking in things like Bible study, studying the Word, prayer, communion with the Lord, meeting together, gathering with the saints for corporate worship and, and, and Bible study and prayer and fellowship. It's through accountability with your fellow saints. That is how these things grow in us. 
That is how these things are increasing. That's how we steward them well, by allowing the Lord to work in His way and His means to grow them. We don't define, we don't get to choose how the Lord causes us to grow. The Lord outlines it in His Word, what we must do. It's that we must know His Word. We must walk in godliness. We must pursue fellowship with the saints and gather regularly for corporate worship. These qualities are yours. You are a steward, and they must be increasing. These qualities are yours and are increasing. Surely, saint, there is no greater source of assurance of your salvation than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You find assurance as you pursue Christ because you know it's not in you. Your hope is not that you can reach out and take hold of and attain Christ. Your hope is because the perfect Son of God, the Lamb who was spotless and without blemish, He bore your sin in His body on the cross. He died for your sin so that you could be made alive in righteousness. That is where our hope lies. That is the hope the assurance of faith that we have, not our faith, but the object of our faith. But dear saint, I would submit to you that another means of assurance of salvation is that you're increasing in these things. If these are yours, if they are increasing, you have assurance of the Holy Spirit living inside of you because the, the flesh cannot attain to these things. The flesh has no desire to grow in these things. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, you long to be like Christ. Increasing in these things, as Peter kind of alludes to, is a sign of fruitfulness. Jesus said that every branch who abides in him bears much fruit. If you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit fruit. Now, Peter gives, as only Peter can word this in such a way that it's not a negative, but it's not necessarily a positive either. He says, if these are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. In John 15, Jesus would say, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, takes away. He takes it away. He cuts off the branch. They are thrown away. They are gathered. They are cast into the fire, and they are burned. That's what awaits those who claim to be in Christ, but who do not produce fruit. That should be a sobering thought to us. That should be a sobering consideration as we see that those who do not walk in Christ, those who do not bear the fruits of godliness, those who do not abide in Him are gathered and cast into the fire and burn. That is speaking of eternal hell, eternal separation from God, eternal suffering and torment for the due punishment of your sin. The Lord saves for a purpose. It's one thing that we have to consider here. The Lord saves for a purpose, and that purpose is that you do not remain in your sin. You are called a saint, a holy one, one who is called out. You're called out from the world. You're called out from the dominion of the flesh. You're called out from the power of Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air. 
You were once living as a son of darkness, but now you are a child of the light. So walk, so live as a child of the light. And to ensure that this does not turn into some holy man-centered salvation that, that is fully dependent on us, continue through verse 8. It says, we are neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of Christ. The goal and the source of our godliness, the way that we are made to be useful and fruitful to the Lord is that we know Jesus Christ. Think about what Peter wrote in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. The Lord has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness in the knowledge of of him. If we want to be fruitful, if we want to have effective lives for the sake of the Lord, it's that we must know him. For that is our eternal life, that we know him, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Ask yourself, do I aim to grow in godliness so that I may earn the approval of men? Do I aim to grow in my walk with the Lord so that others look at me and say, oh, look at how spiritual that person is. Look how mature they are. Look at how much knowledge that they have stored up in their mind of the Lord and His Word and theology and doctrine and all these things. Is that your goal? Or is your goal that you want to walk in good works so that the world will see you and glorify your Father who is in heaven? True godliness results in a humility and a gentle, holy love that points the world to Christ. True godliness results in a humble, gentle, holy love, love for God and love for others that points the world to Christ. So ask yourself, does that describe your pursuit? Does that describe what you are aiming for and what you are growing in? As we said last week, if, if your godliness is to the end that you are not growing in love, then what you pursue is not biblical godliness. It's some device, something that you have designed and come up with in your own mind because godliness results in love. We ought to be like John the Baptist so pointedly said, that he must increase and I must decrease. He, the Lord, must become greater and I must become less. Effective knowledge of Christ results in humility. It results in holiness. It results in a love that points the world to Christ. So as we seek entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. We must strive after this effective knowledge of God, but we also must strive not to have ignorant attraction to sin. Ignorant attraction to sin. Verse 9, Peter writes, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. He has forgotten his purification from his former sins. This is so clear in pointing out the purpose of our salvation. The, the outworking of godliness is that we see the saving work of Christ and it changes us. 
It transforms us. The one who does not walk in godliness, Peter says, has forgotten the purification of his sins. He's forgotten the price that Christ paid. You have to stop and consider. You have to remember. You have to understand this great price that was paid for your soul. It's not just that you have to lay aside some worldly things and then you're suddenly on the path to godliness. No, it's that Jesus Christ, the one as we studied in our Bible study hour, who was immeasurably rich. God himself came in human flesh, laid aside all these privileges of deity, and for your sake he became poor. Not only was he poor in the earthly way, but he was stricken. He was crushed. For your sins. That's the purification of those sins that you have walked in. The Son of God was crushed. And if you don't increase and walk in this godliness, you are as one who has forgotten your former purification of sins. Now let's look at this, this picture that Peter paints. He says that you are like one who is blind or short-sighted. I, I can't help but picture there, this is like one who, one who has the knowledge of Christ but continues walking in sin. It's like a blind man walking on the edge of the Grand Canyon. You're one step away from utter destruction. That's what's before you as you have knowledge of Christ and choose to still walk in sin. We understand we will all still sin. We will slip up. We will stumble, we will fall, we will miss the mark. But if your path after knowing Christ, after coming to this knowledge of who he is and what he's done, if your path is that you continue to run into sin, you are on a path of destruction. You are one step away from stepping over this cliff. Peter says it's like being blind and short-sighted. It's like your spiritual eyes are useless. They're worthless. They let no light in to show you the way that you are living or the glory of Christ. It's like the physical eye being blind. If you are blind completely and your eyes let in no light to illuminate what is around you, what good is the beauty of the Lord's creation to you? You don't see it. You can't see it and glorify the Lord in what he has done and the beauty of his creation. It's like you're looking off in the distance. He says you're blind or you're short-sighted. It's like you're looking off in the distance, but you can't see past the nose on your face. That's dangerous. Uh, that, that can lead you certainly to, to a pathway that is not healthy nor safe. And that describes the one who knows about Christ but continues in sin. It's like what Peter writes about later on in Second Peter at the end of chapter 2. He says in verse 24, If after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now let me tell you, and we don't have time to go into all of that, and that does not talk about losing salvation. What that talks about is that those who have this deep knowledge, but then they still reject Christ. And what Peter tells us, what Hebrews 6 tells us, is the state of that one is even worse than the state of those who have never heard of Christ because there's this callousness. Uh, 
there's this hardness of heart when you see and know the beauty of the Savior, and yet you still reject Him. It's like being blind or short-sighted. Drive and draw this into the spiritual realm. Peter says it's like one who has forgotten his purification from his former sins. It's one who has forgotten that they are washed in the blood of Christ. That the blood of Christ was spilled and poured out to purge and to purify and to wash and to cleanse and to sanctify you. As Paul wrote in Titus chapter 3, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us through the washing of regeneration, through the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That is the, the way that you are saved. And to remain in your sin is to forget that. It's to reject that. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about Christ and his bride, the church. He says that Christ has washed his bride to sanctify her, to cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. That is what Christ does. He cleanses, he washes, and he sanctifies. Though your sins are as scarlet, washed in the blood of Christ, they are as white. Snow. That's the purification of your sins. And for the Christian to fail to lay hold of the need to grow in godliness is for the Christian to fail to take hold of and understand the price that was paid for their sin. How do you fight against this forgetfulness? You know, drive this home. How do you fight against this this life that forgets the purification of your sin? And I think the answer is really rather obvious. It's that you talk about it. You think about it. You dwell upon it. You study it in your home with your spouse or with your children. You read the truths of the word and you discuss what does it really mean that Christ died for my sins. Your children, as they grow, should have an understanding of what it means that Christ became a curse. That he was one who traded his robes of righteousness for your cursed robes that deserved and earned God's wrath. If you don't want to forget the purification, the purifying work of Christ for your sins, think about it. Ask the Lord to show you your sins, and surely in his grace, he will show you sins deeper and further than you ever realized. And in a way, that weight will crush you. But in the Lord's kindness and in his grace... He will draw you to repentance, and and though he crushes you with the weight of your sin, as you consider its cost, he builds you up in in this assurance of your life in Christ. MacArthur writes here that this kind of spiritual forgetfulness leads to the repeating of old sins. MacArthur continues, it robs such Christians of their assurance. Assurance of salvation is not directly related to present spiritual, or is directly related to present spiritual service and obedience. It's not merely based on a past event. You don't have assurance just because you go back and say, I walked the aisle on this date, or I was baptized on this date, or I said a prayer on this date. You have assurance of salvation because you remember the purification of your sins and your life reflects that. Because you are presently obeying and serving and seeking and loving the Lord. So you don't have an ignorant attraction to sin 
Because you know what it cost. We must not disregard the Lord's call to holy living. Because when we do that, we forfeit the glorious assurance of being one who is in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away, the new have come. You are made alive in Christ. You, you have died to your former life of sin and you're made alive in this new life of righteousness. You have new desires and new affections. You seek new, different, good, holy, righteous things. To walk in Christ simply is to remember the price that was paid for your sins and remembering that price, allowing it to build up in you a devotion to that Savior. It's not loving and not walking in the very things that nailed and hung Jesus to the cross. If you love him, if you love him, you will give those things up. If you love Christ, you will not love the things that nailed him to the cross. If you love your Savior, you will not pursue the very things that caused our Heavenly Father to pour out His wrath on His only Son. Because you love Him. Not because you are rigidly seeking to obey to earn righteousness. Because you want to please the one you love. So all of this wraps up in love for Christ. Godliness comes when you love Christ. So there's this effective knowledge of God, there is this ignorant attraction of sin, and then we see that we must diligently practice what is true. Diligent practice of the truth. Verse 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. It's almost like you hear an exhale from Peter here. Uh, again, his, his writing, he just packs so much into verses 2, really into, into every verse. And it's like he comes to verse 10 and you hear, Therefore, finally, in conclusion, what is his conclusion? It's that we must be all the more diligent to make certain about our calling to make certain that the Lord has chosen us, to make certain that we are His, to make certain that as we sing, I am His and He is mine because I'm bought with the precious blood of Christ. We looked at the idea of diligence last week, so I don't want to exhaust that or go too deeply there, but we must remember that this is a call to action. This is not a passive word. It is in the imperative tense, it, it speaks of an ongoing action that shows immediate and present results. So this is not this idea that you will hear of letting go and letting God. This is us diligently striving and laboring and being active and being disciplined in this pursuit of the truth. This is the Christian exercising and living and walking in the new life that Christ has bought. But what are we to diligently do specifically in verse 10? Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain. 
to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. It's to, to make steady, to make steadfast, to make stable and firm your understanding of his election of you. We stake our eternal future in the Lord's calling and choosing of us. And it's steady, it's stable, it's firm because we are diligent in this pursuit of godliness. Because we walk in the things to which we have been called. Hebrews 3 verse 14 says, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. The beginning of our assurance firm to the end. We have certainty of his work in us when we are pursuing that to which he calls us. It's an assurance of his work. It's not an assurance that we are doing enough. It's an assurance that his work is complete. The assurance that when Christ said it was finished at the cross, he really meant that. Because he did. Because it was finished. The price of your sin had been paid in full. Christ rose from the grave in victory. He gave up his spirit at the cross. On the third day, he rises in victory to show that he's triumphant. To show that the heavenly Holy Father had accepted that payment for sin. That is why we have certain assurance. We have certain assurance because it's God's election of his people. Peter says his calling and his choosing of you. Ephesians 1 says that the Lord chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless. To make us holy and blameless. To view us as holy and blameless because he sees us through the lens of Christ. Think about Romans chapter 8. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Be diligent to make certain, to be sure that you are among the called. That you are among the ones that he has foreknown from before the foundation of the world. Because those who he foreknows, he calls and justifies and glorifies. There's great assurance. There's great hope in that. So we're called to walk in the state that he has transitioned us to. We're called to walk in the light as he himself is in the light, to put off darkness because there remains no darkness. The light has come. It has overwhelmed the darkness. We're walking light as he is in the light, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We understand that passage in Romans 8 is speaking of this done deal of the Lord's election of the saints. But that done deal of God's election still has present results. We will one day be glorified and we take that to the bank. But in between this justification and this glorification, there is the work of sanctification. There is the work of being conformed to Christ. What do we do? We strive humbly because it's God's work. It's not your work. It's not the church's work. It's the work of God in you. Verse 10 ends with this. I think there's kind of almost a double meaning 
perhaps what Peter writes here. He says, as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. As long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. You will never fall away. You will never fall all the way back into your old manner of sin. So that's, I think, the first, perhaps, interpretation that we can put there. As long as we're walking in these things, you're not in danger of falling back into sin. You have this this assurance that you will remain because you are walking in exactly what the Lord has called you to. James 2.10 tells us whoever keeps the law and the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. That should be a fearful thing to us as believers. To understand that one sin makes us guilty of breaking the whole law. Stumbling and falling away in that sense is a result of not repenting of sin. You go deeper and deeper and deeper into sin because you stumble and you refuse to get back up. Because you stumble and due to the hardness of your heart, you remain in that sin. And so that type of stumbling should be terrifying. We should always be striving to diligently practice these things so that we don't stumble. There's another idea I think that a couple of commentators pick up with this idea, and that's the, the stumbling of fear of not remaining in Christ. This idea that we stumble over the idea of being able to backslide or to fall back into sin. And Peter says the, the fix to that, your hope in that is to diligently practice and do what is right. And then you will never be overtaken by the fear of stumbling because you walk in Christ. Jude verse 24 says that the Lord is the one who keeps you from stumbling. He keeps you from stumbling to deliver you to his glory. The Lord does the work because it's to his honor and to his glory and his praise. So we come then to verse 11, kind of the the climax uh, of these four verses. We see that there's this effective knowledge of Christ that helps us to not forget our former purification of sins. It helps us not to have ignorant attraction back to our old way of life. It presses us onward to diligently practice the truth. And all of those things come together to result in verse 11, where we see eternal security in Christ. For in this way, in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. In this way, when you read that, that probably, hopefully, takes your mind back to the passage that Ben read earlier for us. Matthew chapter 7, where we are told to enter through the narrow way to enter through the narrow gate because the way is broad and the, and the gate is wide that leads to destruction, but we are to be on the narrow way. We are to enter through the narrow gate because that is the Lord's call in salvation. There's one way to heaven. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. So may we think about that. And consider that, but let's also consider that there is but one who puts you on the narrow way. There's but one who pulls you through the narrow gate, and that is Christ himself. He is the one who stood in the gap, 
who closed the great chasm between your sin and the holiness of God. So if you are on the narrow way, if you are to enter through the narrow gate, it's only through Christ. It's only because He took your sin. Of your own doing, you would remain on that wide and broad path. As Peter began his first epistle, the Lord has caused us to be born again. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that salvation, Peter says, is protected. It is kept by God forever in heaven for you who are in Christ. While we diligently strive, dear saints, strive in the hope of knowing that this work is done. The victory over sin has already been won. And if the victory is won, why do you not walk on that path? Why do you not forsake that sin? Why do you not cut off the arm of the flesh so that you can pursue a pure and undefiled relationship with Christ? Matthew Henry wrote, It is the duty of believers to make their election sure and to clear up to themselves that they are chosen of God. We do that by striving. Dear friend, let me also tell you, you do that by looking to the Savior, by knowing the righteousness and the purity and the perfection of Christ. You have assurance because we have such a glorious Savior. You have assurance because Jesus truly was the God-man. Perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, sinless perfection, and then he went to the cross. That is where we place our hope. And as we make certain this calling, as we strive to enter in this way, Peter says, entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. It will be abundantly supplied to you. It is Christ's kingdom. It belongs to Him, and it exists for Him. There is but one who can invite you to the eternal kingdom, and it is the one who is the king of that kingdom. Do you take hope and glory and joy in that? It exists for him, it belongs to him, and he is the one that calls you. He is the one that gives you entrance. He is the one that pleads his own blood before the throne of the Father on your behalf. It is Christ who intercedes, that is his office today. The great interceder, the, the great high priest. He stands before the throne and he says, not guilty, not guilty. Washed, cleansed, purged, and purified, not because of what you do, but because of Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. That is what Christ does, and in doing that, He abundantly supplies entrance to His kingdom. Supplied in full, immeasurably, in a way that can never be taken away. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. He comes to give you abundant, eternal life. 
Further on in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand, and my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is your eternal security. You belong to Christ. You belong to the Heavenly Father, and no one can snatch you from that position. So take hope, weary saint, as you battle sin, as you battle affliction, as you fight against this world system that is so evil and so ungodly, take heart to know that you are secure in Christ. And strive in that. Strive to grow in the true knowledge of Christ. Strive to increase in your knowledge of Him and the application presently, practically, daily of that knowledge. Strive to make certain and to make apparent and to validate your calling and and His choosing of you. Do that knowing that it's His calling not your calling, it's not your work, it's that the Lord calls you by the blood of Christ. Grace and peace, again, Peter says, are multiplied to you, to us, today. Grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge of Christ. So may we earnestly seek Him, and as we earnestly seek, may we know And may we take joy and hope and assurance in the fact that He will give you abundantly the entrance into His eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we come now and we ask that You would take Your Word and plant it deep within our hearts. Lord, we ask that You would cause us to reflect upon these truths, to think about them, to remember them, and then to apply them in our lives each and every day. Lord, may we diligently seek to know our Savior more. May we walk in the newness of life that He has purchased. And as we do all of those things, Lord, may we do it hoping and knowing that we are secure in Christ. Lord, what a glorious thought to know that Our Savior cried out before yielding up His Spirit at the cross. He cried out, it is finished. Because the work is done. There's not left to do but to walk in it. So Lord, do that. Put strength in our every stride. Give us grace with every hurdle. Cause us to walk and to run with faith. As we march on toward the prize of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And be all honor and glory and power and dominion forever and ever. In his name we pray. Amen.